Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for May 27th. I'm your host, Ken Moore. On this week's edition, we hear about Arkansas cicadas from Dr. Aaron Cato. We also talk to Mariana farmer Nathan Reed about his restoration of abandoned tractors. We also hear from Arkansas Farm Bureau's Mark Lambert on the agricultural impacts of the Memphis-Mississippi River bridge closure. First up, Jason Brown visited with Dr. Aaron Cato, Extension Specialist and Horticulture IPM with the University of Arkansas Cooperative Extension Service to talk all things cicadas. Dr. Cato tells us the history of cicadas and when and if growers and homeowners should be concerned about damage. He even tells us whether these insects are safe to eat. This is Jason Brown with the AgCast. Today we're going to talk to Dr. Aaron Cato, Extension Specialist in Horticulture IPM with the University of Arkansas Extension Service. We're going to chat about that ever-popular topic that you're probably seeing everywhere right now, which is the cicada emergence of the 17-year cicada or brood 10. Dr. Cato, can you give us a brief overview of just cicadas in general? Cicadas, I think most people probably recognize them as locusts. Um, they're not a locust. A locust would be a grasshopper. Uh, cicadas are actually a true bug, or we would call them homopterans or hemipterans, but um, they are actually uh, completely unique from a grasshopper. They live most of their life underground, um, and then they actually emerge, and then they feed on uh, sap, so what we would call them, so sap feeders. They feed on the xylem or the water transport systems uh, of trees. When they're underground, they're feeding on tree roots. They're non or inconsequential when you think of uh, damaging trees and things like that. And when they're adults, they also are inconsequential, um, unless we're in a year where we have a brood emerging right here. And so um, every year you'll see cicadas and they're green and they got like black or green eyes and we call those the dog day cicada. Uh, but the ones that we are all talking about right now and everyone's seeing in the news, that's actually the periodical cicada. Um, and uh, specifically this year, the big emergence is brood 10. Um, brood X is what everyone's calling it, but it's a Roman numeral, so we're supposed to say it. Um, but periodical cicadas, uh, they're very unique, um, almost completely unique to Eastern Arkansas. Uh, I think I read one time that whenever European settlers came over here, they thought it was a biblical plague because they don't have cicada emergences like this. And so when they first saw a brood 10 emergence, um, they thought they had done something wrong and they had come to a land they weren't supposed to be in. But uh, the big thing is, you know, 17 years or 13 years is how long these uh, cicadas spend in the ground as immatures before they come up. And, um, you know, here in Arkansas, we don't have 17-year cicadas. Uh, we actually only have the 13-year variety. And so um, we don't actually have the, the periodicals coming out this year. Okay, Dr. Cato, first questions first. How in the world does someone become uh, the expert on cicadas? I'm an entomologist, and so I've studied insects for, uh, I think, nine years now, or maybe somewhere close to that. Um, I have a master's and a PhD in entomology, and so I've learned about a lot of insects in my time. I've actually done some pretty intensive research on somewhat related species, like aphids or spink bugs, which are also true bugs. Um, but, you know, I've tracked cicadas throughout my time, even working in row crops and things like that, and I think I'm most qualified in talking about how cicadas will affect fruit trees, because currently I work with fruits and vegetables and do IPM with that here in Arkansas. 
Okay, as for the cicada population, what makes this year unique? So this year is unique because brood 10 is the biggest brood. Um, I think they, I saw a number, something like 1.6 million of cicadas will come across an acre in parts of the eastern United States. It has the biggest range and it coincides with our biggest population. So we have, I think, an estimate of multiple, multiple billion up to a trillion cicadas coming out where we have tens of million of people live. Um, and so brood 10 is the big one that everybody watches out for because all the people up in the Northeast are not used to insects like this. Uh, you know, here in Arkansas, we're a bit more used to being plagued by insects, but I think they're a little less used to it because a lot of places are big urban centers that where they're going to come up at. Okay, Dr. Cato, can cicadas have an impact on fruit plants and or trees? They emerge from the ground. They, the males are going to emerge first. That's the loud noise you hear. If you ever grab a cicada off the ground, um, if it yells, it's a male. If it doesn't, it's a female. So males are the ones that are calling. Uh, females come up about a week or more later or a bit later than the uh, males. And what happens is they mate and then the females have to lay their eggs somewhere. And so um, they cut a slit in a uh, branch or the stem of the tree. And so that leads a, a wound. We call it an oviposition wound is what an entomologist would call it, but an egg laying wound. Um, they look for branches or stems that are from about three sixteenths of an inch up to about seven sixteenths of an inch. So just under a half inch in diameter, um, that's where they'll lay them. And so the damage is if you have a ton of these things coming out and they're laying eggs all over a tree, then what you'll see is a lot of death occurred on these small uh, branches. And if it's a small tree, it can actually kill the tree. Um, so young fruit trees could be affected to the point where they would die. Uh, large trees, like a homeowner trees or something, not a big worry. You'll see it, you'll see what we call flagging, which is just where the stem is gonna be dead, uh, right past where they lay the eggs at. Um, but mostly it's just gonna do a little bit of damage, it won't matter. But for a fruit grower, losing limbs is a big deal. And so it could cause damage even at a, a somewhat smaller level of uh, egg laying. But on a normal year with normal cicadas, we got no issue at all. <laughs> Okay, very interesting. Next question I have, will the 17-year cicada population show up here in Arkansas? It will not. Um, so generally 17-year cicadas, and there's one brood that does occur in Oklahoma, but generally they are more north and more east than uh, Arkansas. And so they see them in North Georgia, they see them through Tennessee, all the way to West Tennessee, but 17-year cicadas don't really uh, occur here. There may be like one spot in one county on a county or a state line that where they may occur, but 13 year cicadas are the ones that we do deal with. Um, and so they're the more Southern or almost like more Mississippi River Valley associated uh, cicada broods. And we actually have two different broods that come up in Arkansas. Um, we're still not gonna have them for some time. Um, I've got it written down here where they're at. So brood 19 um, is uh, one of the broods that we deal with, and we'll see them again in 2024. And then brood uh, 23 is the other one that we uh, deal with, and we'll see that in uh, 2028. Brood 23, that's the one that was kind of more associated with the Mississippi River Delta or Valley or the Delta, um, and so that'll be mostly down there in 2028. And brood 2020 or brood 19 would be in 2024 and that's kind of north arkansas west arkansas and south arkansas so really everywhere but the river valley or the delta okay for all our cicada uh folks out there how might arkansans track the 17 year cicada or the brood 10 population yeah so there's a few resources online uh, the one i always go to is called cicadamania.com and they have a twitter and a facebook and everything else and and basically people just write in here's where we're seeing them here's how many we're seeing um, and there's maps associated with that. 
Um, the Wikipedia page is actually pretty good as well, and it actually uh, involves an up-to-date map that shows all of the broods, um, where they expect them to come out, and what year they came out last, and which one will come out next. And it's pretty easy to track. Uh, if it's a 13-year cicada, we know it came out in uh, 2011, like the one we had in Arkansas. We know it's coming back in 2024. Okay, so let's let's talk damage. Uh, if you're a homeowner or even a fruit grower, what are some signs of damage that one might see um, as a result of you know cicadas and how would they address that if you if you have a house and you have a lot of trees you could be worried if it is emergency year. so 2024 may be the first year you should be worried on a non-emergency year which would be this year for arkansas no worries at all um, but go out and look if you're seeing a bunch of orange uh, orange eyed cicadas come up that means we've got it wrong and the brood has shifted which happens sometimes it doesn't shift far enough to come into arkansas usually but usually it shifts a little because they do fly around the adults do when they mate um, then you may be worried um, and to where you may have to use maybe an insecticide to slow them down. But for homeowners, typically we don't recommend insecticides. If you're in a brood year, which would be 2024, the next time in Arkansas, if it's a small tree, cover it with some kind of netting. The holes need to be less than a quarter inch uh, um, so the cicadas can't go through it. And then you'll be perfectly fine. Those trees will be. So anything you put new in the landscape probably needs to be covered. Bigger trees, just don't look at them. Uh, you'll see a lot of flagging uh, limbs or stems, and there's going to be some damage, but they'll be fine. They'll make it through it. Uh, they'll look bad for a year or two, but they'll be all right. Um, now, if you're a fruit grower, um, this you really need to be concerned, and you need to go out and watch. And so just check for them. Um, if there's going to be enough damage that it concerns you, you'll be able to find them when they start coming out because there'll be a lag and when they come out and when they start damaging because the males come out first. You'll see all the little skins like you're used to, and then you'll hear them as well. Uh, and then the females come out. And what we recommend is a pyrethroid. If you're in a brood year, if you're seeing them on your farm, pyrethroid applications maybe every uh, three to five days or so um, until you're not seeing them come out anymore. And uh, pyrethroids do a pretty good job of knocking them back, but there's always associated risk with killing your natural enemies, killing your pollinators. And so uh, you really want to make sure they're there and you're in a brood year for your area before you start trying to use insecticides for them. Okay, here, wrapping up, is there any myth busting we could do while we're talking about cicadas? Any false information out there or maybe something that, um, that Arkansas may be worried about that maybe shouldn't be? Just share a little bit um, with us uh, based, on, based on your knowledge and experience. Oh, I, I don't know. I think people kind of are scared when they look at them. They look kind of like little aliens. Um, if you've ever seen horror movies, they definitely fit in. But insects have always kind of uh, been on the forefront of ideas for horror movies, like Alien is taken straight from insects. Um, but, you know, cicadas are nothing to worry about. Uh, they can't bite you. Um, they have like a, a kind of a wicked little mouth part that looks like they could just sting you like a big... Uh, I don't know, like a big mosquito or something, but they only feed on sap. Uh, the adults feed a little bit. I think most people say the adults don't feed at all, but they do feed a little. Um, but yeah, you could eat them if you wanted there. I mean, they're not toxic. Your kids can pick them up, anything. Um, there's nothing ever gonna be a big deal with them. Um, they're actually really good for the environment. And so what we see is when we have these huge broods emerge, everything that feeds on them, which could be like possums or uh, cats or <laughs> birds would be a better example of something that's good and fish they always get, uh, their populations always fare a little better because there's so much extra food. They have a better job of, uh, you know, taking care of their kids, whether it be uh, young fish or maybe young birds or things like that. And even plants do better. 
because all of this, uh, all these nutrients were sequestered by cicadas. They come up, die, and it goes back into the soil when the mills die. And so um, it's only a good thing, I would say, unless you're a fruit grower, then there's something to worry about. But it's no worse than any other pest that we have. Um, it's just something you need to be vigilant about. Um, but the biggest uh, myth is that we're going to deal with it at all here in Arkansas. Maybe, I mean, I just don't imagine that the, if we haven't seen these things in Arkansas, then we're never going to. They just don't move enough for for that to matter. All right. Before we get out of here, I think it would be uh, really, really interesting to hear how are these different broods of cicadas named? How are they discovered? And, and tell us a little bit about that, the history. And so brood 10. And so this all goes back to a little bit of history. I'll pull up my notes because I... I'm always, I love history and I'm kind of a little buff, especially with insect history because I'm an entomologist. But so these, all these broods were originally named in 1893. So brood one came out in 1893. And what happened was uh, C.L. Marquette, which was the guy who named them said, I'm gonna name out uh, from one to 18, that'll be my, uh, my 17 year cicadas and all the way up to 30 will be my 13 year cicadas. Well, um, and so we're at brood 10. So this would have been 10 years after the brood he thought that was gonna come out 10 years after uh, the original. Uh, realistically, we only have 12 broods of 17. There were some we never saw that he identified, and two have actually gone extinct. And so we used to see them, we don't see them anymore, and we have three broods of 13-year cicadas. And so actually it was one 17-year and one 13-year that actually went extinct. And so um, if you're ever wondering why it's a brood 10 or why it's a brood 19, it's because it's 19 years after the year that they were all named, and that's that's really the, the idea behind it. You know, before we sit down to re record earlier, you mentioned that there can be uh, almost a following of the emergence. And and I think even more interesting than that, uh, the, the phenomena of, of, of eating these uh, cicadas. Can you share a little bit about that? I think that would be great to hear. I think it's like in, in some senses, I was reading an article the other day in Georgia, you know, people want to go see it, especially the brood X. And so uh, places that have these huge emergences, they definitely benefit kind of like when we saw the solar eclipse, everybody kind of travels. And so, People in some of the, uh, like our areas will be traveling to areas to see this huge emergence because if you've ever been in an area where it's a highly, uh, even for a brood year where a lot come up, it's, you can't talk to each other. Um, I think the, the sound is like 80 or 90 decibels. And so it's enough, it's like a lawnmower. And so technically probably you can have some ear damage from it. Um, you know, most people have probably mowed the lawn and not used ear protection, but over time that will damage your ears. And so it's the same level as a lawnmower. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of cultural significance. People eat cicadas. And so even I'm sure in older times, uh, humans probably did a lot better on cicada emergence years. Um, a lot of my colleagues uh, probably are, you know, gonna have a lot of cheap meals after this. Uh, I don't know, here in Arkansas, we're not gonna have any of the brood ones, but I don't know even on a brood year if I'm gonna be out trying to, to eat too many of them myself. Okay, great. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. He is Dr. Aaron Cato, Extension Specialist in Horticulture IPM at, with the University of Arkansas Extension Service. And that is all you need to know about cicadas here in Arkansas. Like most farmers, Nathan Reed of Mariana has to keep a close look at his bottom line and farm expenses. He wants to invest his disposable income on land acquisition, not brand new tractors. I traveled to Reed's farm this week to have him share how he began acquiring abandoned tractors, some more than four decades old, and restoring them as a proven economic benefit to his operation. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Ken Moore, and today I'm on the farm of Nathan Reed over here outside of Mariana. 
in Lee County, and we're talking about how Nathan, a number of years ago, started uh, because of his bottom line expense and farm equipment, started locating, purchasing, and restoring old antique tractors. Nathan, uh, in this day and age, uh, when you're a farmer, especially a crop farmer, you got to make economic sense out of this whole thing. Talk about how you started doing that when you first started buying these tractors and how you've been restoring them to uh, save you money on your farm. So I, I guess a number of years ago I, I purchased an old tractor at an online auction uh, and uh, and ran it and, and saw we ended up putting 1,000 hours on it and seeing it, it really wasn't that bad. Uh, it was just as productive as our you know, half million dollar tractor and, and dirt moving operation and, and tillage tractors. So, uh, I, I kind of got to, to thinking that, you know, there, there's something to this. So, uh, I, I guess I went and kind of searched for specific older tractors, uh, that parts are still available for, uh, that have certain transmissions that are cheaper to rebuild. Uh, Allison transmissions is what, what all of our tractors have. I have old Steigers and Romes. Uh, and so, uh, bought a few of them and 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 went in and got them running and kind of did rolling restorations on them uh so i've i've got two steigers now in very good condition that we've we've done rolling restorations on and, and are very productive tractors we put two thousand hours on them in the last couple of years so i've uh, been very pleased and 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 they do make economic sense so and steiger tractors i mean everybody's familiar with the modern name brands uh john deere massey ferguson etc but uh farmers from back in the 60s and 70s that would recall that name yes it was uh they were made up in the i think north dakota uh uh case ih bought them out in the the early 80s uh so so it's uh the the and generally the the when case bought them you know they they obviously changed they kind of just bought the name and kept some of the older stuff but but what we're running are the the earlier steiger tractors from the late 70s through the early 80s uh the main reason I picked those tractors, they have an Allison automatic uh, transmission that's the same transmission that's in a lot of big trucks uh, and, and other other equipment, and the, the transmissions are readily available, and, and they actually uh, excel uh, in the type of work we do. So, so they have a torque converter, uh, so rather than being direct geared like a modern transmission, when they get a load on them, uh, they won't just stall out. They just kind of slow down until... Uh, they, they, it's, you can't really stall the tractor out. So it's an ideal transmission for dirt moving. I wish they still made modern tractors, uh, with that transmission. But the other beautiful thing about it is, uh, they are, uh, very economical to work on, uh, especially compared to a, a you know, a modern, uh, especially big four wheel drive tractor you would move dirt with. I mean, generally you're 40 to $80,000 to rebuild the transmission in that. Uh, whereas the, the tractors I've restored here, uh, you're, I think an exchange reman is $6,000. I priced one the other day. So you're, you're talking exponentially cheaper, uh, parts cost. Uh, most of the components on it were, were big truck components. Uh, and so a lot of the, I guess a lot of the, the, the parts can be bought at, at truck supply places, truck pro, uh, things such as that. Uh, and then there is a, <clears throat> for the Steigers, there's a, uh, big tractor parts in Minnesota. They're a, they, uh, stock and, and actually produce parts exclusively for these older Steigers and big four-wheel drive tractors. So uh, it's not that much different than going to the John Deere place and ordering a part for a modern tractor. Uh, we go, I call big tractor parts, and two or three days later, uh, the parts show up if I if there is something that I can't source locally. So it's it's been very convenient in pretty much every 
every part on these tractors uh, is still produced and readily available. Well, that's good to know, Nathan. Now, tell me, uh, in this economy, and you've already kind of touched on this briefly, but it's so important for farmers to watch their bottom line and, and equipment purchases when input costs for irrigation, fertilizer, everything else is so expensive. Uh, if you can restore old equipment like you are and save money, you're going to get a lot of hours out of these uh, remodeled uh, tractors, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel the two that we've completed. I mean, most of the major components are rebuilt and, and refurbished or, or, or new. So, I mean, I, I think I don't even know the amount of hours they have on them, but they're so easy to rebuild and the, and the components are that, I, I mean, I, I fully expect to get 10,000 hours out of these before I have to do any major work. So, uh, and again, the, the parts costs are so cheap, transmission, engine, uh, that, that even if we do have a major component failure, it's, it's not a, it's not a, not a near as big of a deal as, as having to do that on a modern tractor. Uh, my, my plans long-term in this tractor I'm fixing to start building, we're, we're starting out putting a modern computer engine in it. Uh, one of the ones I've restored has a modern, uh, Detroit 60 series engine or, or a late nineties computer controlled engine, um, the, these old tractors are great because they don't have the computers on them, but uh, the modern pre-emission computer-controlled uh, diesel engines, uh, they're actually easier to work on. Uh, you know, they have diagnostics on them, so they tell you what's wrong with them. You don't have to kind of guess, and, and so they're a lot, a lot easier to troubleshoot, uh, and the, the fuel economy is almost double what these older pre uh, what these older mechanical diesel engines were so so that's that's kind of the best of both worlds if i can get these and, and as the motors start going out on the ones that we're running uh we're going to put modern computer controlled engines in them so uh, that that's kind of the plan and then everything else is mechanical the transmission and rear ends and you just don't have all the the modern problems associated with modern tractors with the can bus and and uh computer issues sensor problems we're kind of talking inside baseball here that farmers listening to this will understand what you're talking about because every farmer has to be a, a mechanic, doesn't he? I mean, you have to restore your equipment. You have breakdowns. You're dealing with a breakdown right now. You need some parts yeah. for one of these uh, tractors out here. But uh, you understand that, and when you understand uh, the mechanics of it and now the new technology, uh, you really can make this work. You can make it work for you at an affordable price. Uh, and just talk about how, you know, the economy that row crop farmers are, are living in today, it just makes sense to try to do this, uh, to find older pieces of equipment, and in particular tractors. Because like you say, when it comes to harvesting, you still need the modern combines, or in your case, you know, as a cotton farmer, cotton pickers. Yes, that's that's very much true uh, throughout I guess since I started farming in, in 2005, you know, we bought all new tractors uh, and they were $125,000 a piece. Whereas a modern, uh, just 15 years later, 16 years later, that tractor's almost tripled in cost, you know, to three hundred to $360,000. So, uh, or two and a half times the cost. So uh, that's where looking at my bottom line year in, year out, I, I, I had massive equipment payments as a young farmer and 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 a lot that's driven this is i'm trying to buy farmland and and trying to make payments on farmland and payments on all new equipment just just does not work uh and so that's where uh being able to get my equipment costs down has allowed me to expand my farming without a huge capital expenditure 
uh, I, I guess without having to increase my lines of credit and take out more loans, uh, you know, all these old tractors, they just, you, you buy them out of your pocket and fix them up out of your pocket. And, and it, it seemed to really, really work well for my farm. I'm not saying this is for everybody. Uh, you, you need people with mechanical aptitude, uh, employees, or, or, or you have it. Um, but, and people that are willing to do it. Luckily, I've got a very, very good group of employees who enjoys messing with these older tractors and, and really, uh, really takes pride in what we've been able to do with them. And so that's, that's also helped, helped immensely. And I I apologize to them and say, you know, do y'all ever get tired of this? And they say, no, we never know what you're going to come up with. So our job is never boring. So, uh, and that's what, uh. So it's 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 been a godsend on our farm, and and we're out here leveling a field with these old tractors now. And I, I just purchased this land, and I was able to purchase it because I don't have these these overbearing equipment payments. You know, I can put that that towards uh, appreciating assets rather than depreciating assets. And that's kind of been uh, back in uh, 2010, I guess, uh, w- when my father passed away. I, I took on a lot of debt to take over the family farming operation, and uh, our equipment was all worn out, so I ended up buying almost all new equipment. So I, 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 I had these massive payments, went into massive debt, which at the time, I mean, I really didn't have many other options, uh, but I kind of made myself a promise then that I, I'm not going to go in that much debt again unless it's for land, and I'm not going to go in, in debt like that on depreciating assets. I'm going to do whatever I can uh, to, to not not go in uh, because I felt like I worked for the next seven years to pay off all this equipment. And then after seven years, it was worn out and, and not worth that much anyway, and I needed more new equipment. Uh, so I, I've, I've tried to do whatever I can to, to, from putting myself in that situation again. And my plan has always been try to get the equipment where we don't really have loans against it and, and use that money uh, to, to, for, for capital improvements and to improve the land and, and to hopefully purchase more land. Well, one thing that is always increasing in value is land. Uh, and you know that, and, and you're wanting to expand your operation that way. And so what you've just said just makes sense. Uh, and so where did you find these? I mean, you're, are you going online to find these old tractors, or are you just seeing them sitting along the side of the road? Uh, it's it's everything that you stated and more. So we uh, once, I guess I'm kind of known, there's some very active Facebook communities on these tractors and old, older, on older tractors. Uh and then, you know, I'm, I'm very active on those, and, and they see me taking these in and posting pictures of restoring them. So uh, just tips, people calling me, texting me, uh, online, Facebook tips. Uh, so it's, it's it, you know, and, and a lot of times, especially with these older roams, you have, they don't really wear out because you can just kind of keep rebuilding them, and even the Steigers too. So what I found out on some of these tractors, you you've got an old tractor that, that the the father had or the grandfather had and they've passed away now and it got parked in the fence row 15 20 years ago and and you know they 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 don't really want to haul it for scrap because that was their grandfather's favorite tractor and that's all he talked about but but they don't really know what to do with it uh and and so a lot of times they're happy to sell it to somebody like me that's either going to restore it or it's going to get used for parts and because because sometimes their only other option would be just to haul it off for scrap uh so so i've been able to purchase quite a few from people that that have it sitting back there behind their shed and they don't really know what to do with it they know they just don't want it to get hauled off for scrap so uh you know and and i can take them and show them what i've been doing and show them what i plan to do and 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 even uh 
uh, you know, th- it may not get restored, but it's at least going to be used for parts and, and, and live on through that. And, and they, they like that. So, uh, and I had, uh, I mean, I got two, a gentleman in Alabama that had two of them and he had bought them and used them and, and just wasn't using them anymore. But he said, I want them to go to somebody that knows what they are and, and can appreciate them. So that, that does help a lot. Uh, so, but yes, I, I've gotten tractors from driving by and stopping Facebook, internet. I've got a tractor in South Florida right now. I'm trying to get home. I got one coming in from Illinois next week. Uh, I'm speaking to a guy in, in upstate New York about purchasing one. So it's definitely a process because you don't want to spend more on transportation to get them home than you paid for them, but sometimes you might have to. But, uh, so, so once you buy them, uh, and also I'm not, uh, I'm to a point now where I kind of have a, a few years of projects lined out. So mainly the ones I'm buying are either for parts or for, for way down the road. So, uh, I've, I've got tractors scattered out all over the country that I bought and waiting on backhauls and are on equipment haulers list that whenever they get a, get a backhaul, maybe from that direction, it may take a year, but usually, uh, I end up getting it home for a reasonable price. So that's cool. That is too cool. Nathan, very ingenious. And, uh, you think uh, your dad would be looking down, really proud of you, seeing how you're doing this and, uh, you know, keeping the farm going and, and, you know, knowing that, you know, you're continuing that legacy and you're making it work for your family. I mean, you just got to look at that bottom line. You're raising a family and uh, you got to make economic sense out of all of it. You're going to be putting kids through school in the future. And none of us know what this farm economy is going to be like in the next four to five to six years. And that's absolutely right. That's where... Um, if you, if I always figure if I can get rid of equipment payments, no matter what kind of year and what kind of commodity prices we have, I, I generally should be able to survive. <laughs> and that's, it's just like a yoke around your neck when you're, when you've got these high equipment payments, plus trying to expand and, and high input prices across the board. So, uh, I guess I've always, dad always said, you, you control what you can control. Well, well, I have grown some non-GMO crops and done some different stuff, but it, it's, the, the actual crop input side, as far as fertilized chemicals, seed, there's not a lot you can do there to control that. Right. Uh, I mean, you can you can make some changes and cut some things, but but generally they are what they are. Whereas the equipment price is, is about the only thing that we really have control over what our equipment price is. Uh, and so uh, I, I say I have a rule on my farm. It generally it has to be bent, burnt, or broken. Uh, Joe Renicky. <laughs> Uh, told me that, you know, former active member in Farm Bureau. Uh, and that's generally what we've done on all our tillage implements. Uh, we generally buy used and, and redo it. And on our, uh, on our, on these old tractors restoring them. And, and kind of the only thing I really buy brand new is, is like you said, harvest equipment. Uh, I try to keep, keep newer, newer harvest equipment. And then uh, our, our few row crop tractors that we use for planting and running grain carts and, and, uh, uh, tillage and or, or, or hipping up rows uh generally most of those I, I still keep new i'm running versatile tractors and they're less than half of the, the cost of other uh i guess mainstream equipment manufacturers and i've been very pleased with them so uh i tried to just take a a whole farm approach to equipment uh i, I don't look at equipment as a as a asset of my farm i, I try to have my again t- assets tied up in in real things such as real estate and and uh so i, I don't I try not to buy something looking at what's resale value going to be in five years. I try to justify it based on a cost per hour over the life of the equipment. So, uh, and that's, that seems to have worked well for me. Uh, All right.
One final question off topic here just as we wrap this up today, Nathan. Uh, you're getting ready to wrap up if you haven't already. Uh, when I think of Lee County, I mean, I'm sitting here next to a cornfield, and uh, I know you grow rice and beans as well, but Lee County's known for cotton, and the Reed family's known for growing cotton, and you're going to keep doing that regardless of what the price is, uh, even when cotton acres in, in Arkansas dipped down to under 200,000 acres a few years ago, you kept planting cotton. What's a you know, summer look like for you, and what kind of a cotton crop year are you looking at? Well, we, uh, I, it, when people ask me what kind of farmer I am, I, I say I'm a cotton farmer. And uh, I enjoy growing it. I've, that's what, I've, when I moved back, we were 100% cotton. Uh, but unfortunately, just because with these commodity prices, I have cut back dramatically on my cotton this year, or drastically on my cotton this year. Uh, I still have a, a significant amount, but, but nowhere near what I've had in the past. Uh, a lot of that is uh, I haven't been able to rotate uh, I started growing rice a few years ago, furrow irrigated rice. It's worked out very year, very well. I've expanded on that on my heavier clay soils, which I don't grow cotton on. Uh, but what that did was it kind of forced me out of growing corn uh, because I didn't have enough harvest capacity to, to really grow rice and corn uh, in large acreages. So uh, I guess a side effect of that has been that my, my cotton yields have, have gone down somewhat because we haven't really been able to rotate because corn is the best rotation for cotton. Uh, so this year, as much as anything, it's a year for me to, to actually purchase another combine, and now I have the heart, and, and I cut back on my rice because of the price and just because of rotation. Uh, so I ended up growing quite a bit of corn where I haven't had any corn. I, I have a significant amount this year. Uh, and that was really to get some rotation on this cotton land for weeds and, and, and uh, nutrition uh, to be able to build up the ground. But I still have a significant amount of cotton, and I will definitely be back with, with more cotton next year. It's just this year it made financial sense and sense for, for my farm to, to, uh, to cut back the cotton a little bit and go a lot heavier with corn. Are you doing what some of your, are we considered doing what some of your neighbors are doing and growing peanuts with the cotton because of that nematode benefit and, and things like that? There's a lot of uh, Lee County farmers that are into the peanut uh, business now. Yes, uh, I guess uh, a couple things. One, uh, the main thing is our soils here. We're, we're east of Crowley's Ridge, and we, we generally have heavier soils that aren't conducive to peanut production. So there's not a lot of peanut production east of the ridge. Uh, so so there, there's a couple farmers that are doing it, but uh, I just I, I didn't have enough land to make that capital investment. I only have about 1,000 acres I maybe could grow peanuts on, and then you, you do a three-year rotation. So, so really the most I could ever have would be 300 acres a year. And at that point, I just didn't feel like it was worth making the whole capital investment for that. And right around the time the peanut thing came out is when we were doing this furrow rice and kept expanding it. And that was still pretty experimental till the last couple of years. Uh, so I, I kind of made a rule that I'm just going to do one kind of experimental thing at once <laughs> on my farm or one new, you know, new horizon thing at once. So I, I kind of expanded my my uh, furrow rice production yeah. rather than get into the peanut production. And it, and it fits my farm in this area well. So, Well, Nathan, thanks for visiting with us today, uh, taking a few minutes out of your time to share your story with us. It's a fascinating story what you're doing, restoring these tractors. And uh, I have a feeling that uh, some of the people who are listening, if there's any creative farmers out there, uh, I know online, Facebook, social media, uh, you're kind of setting the trend for a lot of other row crop farmers to do the same thing. And uh, in this farm economy, again, uh, you got to look at that bottom line. And best of luck to you in the future, my friend. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Been talking to Nathan Reed on his farm out here uh, outside of Mariana in Lee County uh, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Finally, Jason Brown spoke with Mark Lambert, Arkansas Farm Bureau Director of Commodity Activities and Economics, to discuss the potential impacts to the state's agriculture industry resulting from the Mississippi River bridge closures. Mark also gives us a few things to look out for as the growing season progresses throughout the year. I'm Jason Brown, and this is the AgCast from Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today we're joined by our colleague Mark Lambert, Director, Commodity Activities and Economics. We're going to discuss the closure of the Mississippi River Bridge and the closure of the Mississippi River and the potential impacts to Arkansas agriculture. Mark, thanks for joining us. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, just start by giving us a recap of what happened a few weeks ago with the Mississippi River Bridge. So um, the Mississippi River Bridge uh, back on May the 11th was going through a routine annual inspection. Um, On May the 11th, they found a crack in the steel beam structure. Um, I think one of the main structure beams and it was a pretty significant crack in the beam. Um, and they halted traffic, vehicular traffic on, on the bridge. And they also halted maritime traffic underneath, which started backing barges up. Um, they, they rerouted all the traffic to I-55, which is the old steel bridge, uh, just right down the river, I think three miles or mile or something like that. So that's that's kind of what what we've been looking at yeah what is the current stage of the repairs and 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 what are the next steps uh so phase one uh what they're pretty much doing in in the first in the first i guess first thing they got to do is secure everything down tighten every tighten the bolts and make sure everything's ready to go so they can actually bring in heavy equipment um they hired a contractor. The contractor's working 24 hours a day around the clock uh, to put that put that steel beam, uh, I guess, secure that steel beam. Uh, phase one, I think, is probably going to be complete by the end of the week from what, I, what I've seen. Uh, going into phase two, um, from what I understand, they're going to take the steel beam out and replace that and then hopefully open everything back up. Uh, hopefully that fixes the problem. Yeah, so vehicle traffic will not be opened back up during phase one or phase two. Is that right? Correct. Vehicle vehicle traffic will be will be closed. Uh, I suspect you know if they if they bring in barges to work on that bridge with cranes, um, we could see maybe one lane one lane traffic underneath the bridge um, for barges uh, due to the Mississippi River. I mean. I mean, we've all seen the barges that run up and down. They may be four or five wide uh, coming up and down the Mississippi River trying to get that freight down. So, Yeah, so that brings up a, a, a couple of, of good questions. What are, the, what are the ag impacts or potential impacts to vehicle traffic being closed right now? Are there any? So ag impacts on vehicle traffic. In Arkansas, I don't think we could be – sitting at a more perfect location. Um, I know, I know, yeah, I, I hate to say that, but you know, for the tourism industry, it's, it's detrimental for Arkansans to go to Memphis, but there's a way around. We could either go to Dyersburg or Helena, um, to get over that river. But with the ag impacts, most of our ports are sitting on the West Memphis side. 
of the river and most of them are sitting south of the south of that river bridge you know we have a few we have a couple ports around osceola uh points at grain i think is one of one of those ports up there um you have cargill cgb uh bungie and then obviously you have the steel mill up there which is a which is another port north of that river um so looking at vehicular traffic um, most of our grain trucks and stuff, they really don't cross that bridge. They go to those ports there in West Memphis so they can get turned around and come on back. Um, it would probably be pretty dangerous to bring those grain trucks in uh, into the Memphis city limits. So, All right. Yeah, that's great. So have you seen or do you know of a timeline for re- reopening the bridge to vehicle traffic? So looking – Looking at a timeline, I think I think what's been tossed around is somewhere in the August time frame. Um, I think the sense of urgency is there uh, to open that vehicular traffic. Um, the so once they get phase one done, which should be probably end of the week, then they'll start looking at phase two, and hopefully they don't find any more problems. And then once they finish that phase two, then then your traffic will open back up, which they've tossed that idea of, like I said, August, first August, end of August. Hopefully the closer to the first August would be better than the end of August for us. Yeah. We start heading into harvest. Um, so what were the ag impacts again, if any, to, we talked about vehicle, uh, vehicular traffic. What are the ag impacts of maritime traffic being stopped in those first few days? So looking back at it, you know, when they stopped maritime traffic on the 11th of May until the 14th of May, um, I think it was somewhere right around the range of a thousand barges got backed up in that three day time frame. Um, a big portion of that may have been either going upriver or downriver. Going upriver, you're going to have the ag inputs. Um, you're looking at fertilizer, urea, uh, nitrogen sources. Going downriver, since our export market's so hot right now due to the uh, China trade agreement and China buying pretty much every bean and every piece of corn that we have, um, going to New Orleans, I mean, the Mississippi River is is that is our pretty much backbone to the to the world. Um, it's kind of our Panama Canal through through the world. So um, that that would be a huge. I'm trying to get this old crop to disappear and so we can get ready for the new crop. So um, those thousand barges backed up, you know, for that one week, a bunch of people were real hesitant and they were real scared that, you know, maybe we weren't going to get fertilizer and fertilizer is going out as fast as it can right now. Um, but, but you're hearing good things about the supply chain now, now that we've gotten past those first few days. Yeah, I'm hearing some pretty good things. Uh, you know, I'm hearing some chemical shortage shortages on glufosinate. Um, uh, I'm I'm hearing, you know, which is Liberty, the Liberty chemical. I'm hearing that it's really hard to come by right now. Um, but other than that, that's pretty much the only only supply chain that I see that I've heard that that is kind of hard to come by. Um, I think it's all pretty much a carryover from from last year in the pandemic. Um, people not going to work, factories they can't find workers. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, do you anticipate closing or, or is it, there's, there's still too many questions in the air to anticipate a closing of the river to maritime traffic again? You mentioned maybe a reduction of lanes, uh, which could obviously cause some impacts just in and of itself, but a complete closure? Any word on that? I, I would suspect that I, I wouldn't say there would be a closure. Um, you know, we've seen the one lane barge traffic before. When the Mississippi gets so low, you know, they have reductions of freight uh, or one lane passing um, of those barges. So we've seen that before. It slows it down a little, but not, not too terribly bad. Um, the big thing is the Port of Memphis is another aspect of our export market here in Arkansas. We have an FGIS facility over there, which is Federal Grain Inspection Service, um, to where every single barge that runs through Arkansas, Mississippi, I think Missouri, they all have to have an export certification, and the Port of Memphis issues those uh, export certifications on those barges. Luckily, they can take those barges straight over to the river uh, through through the water waterways, and they can probe those barges. But some of those guys, they come over and they sample grain. Uh, if you want to challenge your grain, um, they come over, pick your grain up, and take it back to the FGIS facility. They and they sa- they resample that grain uh, for you if you needed a challenge. Um, and luckily, we have we have that opportunity here in Arkansas through our grain grain bill that uh FGIS works with us on that. Okay, great. Uh yeah, are there any other, you know, things that you're looking at during the repair phase that could impact agriculture, whether that be timeline, potential closures or re- closures or reductions of traffic, any anything like that that that, that is catching your eye specifically? You know, if if they do happen to close close down barge traffic again, um, I think you would see a potential in in rising uh, the rising basis uh, south of the river. So, I mean, there's a CGB terminal there um, south of I think in between the 55 and the 40 bridge. That I mean, you could see a potential positive, extremely positive basis there. Um, and trying to force those force that grain to that to that facility to offload on barges to to get into the export market because um, you really don't want to squeeze as Arkansas is the very first people to come off other than Louisiana um, for harvest. I, I think you could s- start seeing those people to bring that bring that product down. Okay, any any way the Arkansas River comes into play here. Yeah, so the Arkansas River goes into goes into the Mississippi. Um, I was talking to a guy the other day, and they they handle a lot of freight on the Arkansas, and they were like, you know, it. We we hadn't seen anything other than, I mean, it's positive for us because we can we can get our barges into the Arkansas River and bring it on up. Um, obviously, the Arkansas River, you know, you know, we have a lot of terminals there. Um, clearly. I mean, you can't load the barges as big as you can in the in the Mississippi, and the more you touch those barges, the higher the cost goes. So, um, I guess going into I guess at Pendleton, uh, those those barges will go into the Mississippi there, and you'll probably start seeing a backup of the barges there. But other than that, I think we're in 
excellent shape in Arkansas. Okay, great. Is there any myth busting that you could do as far as in- industry conversations on this topic, things that you're hearing in the field here about the bridge, maybe some, some concerns or fears that you just simply don't see as a concern or anything? I mean, uh, the biggest thing is the, is our input supply. You know, a lot of people are scared of the inputs, um, which pretty much all of our fertilizer warehouses, all of our um, chemical warehouses are pretty much slap full right now and products going out on the ground right now as fast as it can. Uh, we're having extremely favorable weather here in kind of the, I wouldn't say southeastern Arkansas region, very southeastern around the Lake Village area, but our favorable weather right now, everything's going out as fast as it can. So, I mean, we're looking pretty good on the input side. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't I don't hope that we see these high bases there at West Memphis due to a problem, but, I mean, you could possibly see that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, thanks for taking the time. Uh, thank you again to Mark Lambert, Director of Commodity Activities and Economics here at Arkansas Farm Bureau, for giving us an update on the Mississippi River Bridge uh, closure and uh, and so on and so forth. Thanks for being here, Mark, and we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this edition of Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with all the latest on Arkansas agriculture. I'm Ken Moore.